I really like the format of what we're doing uh, over this couple of weeks, this series. I'm a big fan of questions. And so I'm planning, although I'm not very good at uh, living up to my own desires in this respect, but I'm planning on not speaking for too long so that we can have a good time for questions uh, at the end. So this is, um, this is the third one in the series. And uh, I'm going to start with a picture of someone. This is some, of, some of the people in here are my students. And uh, so some of the stuff that they've, they're going to hear today, they've heard before, they hear a lot. And I often talk about this person in my classes. Do you all know who, the, who that is? Yeah, you all know. And you don't even have to know her last name. She's one of these people that just has a first name, really. If you say Ellen, people most of the time think of this person, right? This is Ellen DeGeneres. And she is, uh, like it or not, pretty big deal. She is pretty famous. Uh, And as some proof of that, here are a couple of facts about her. Forbes estimated that Ellen DeGeneres made $77 million last year. In 2015, she was named the 50th most powerful woman in the world by Forbes and number two on the World Pride Power List, whatever that is. She's won 30 Emmys and has more than 71 million followers on Twitter and 47 million on Instagram, making her the sixth most followed user on Twitter and the 28th most followed user on Instagram. So yeah, it's safe to say that she's a pretty big deal, like it or not. And there are a couple of things that Ellen likes to say quite a bit. She's got these little mantras, these catchphrases that she throws around all the time. One of them, which is the way that she signs off her show, is be kind to one another, which is great. It's really nice, right? Another one is this. Be true to yourself and everything will be fine. And this is some good old-fashioned advice. And I do mean that it's old-fashioned. It's really old-fashioned. Shakespeare actually wrote it in Hamlet in 1601. So that's pretty old. That's 400 years old. And it sounds good, right? It's the kind of thing that we hear all the time. It's positive pop psychology self-help 101. Be true to yourself. But I wonder if anyone really stops to ask what is a pretty important question. What on earth does that mean? What does it mean to be true to yourself? So a question that we are dealing with today in our series is, was I born this way? And to clarify, what we're talking about is a question of our desires. So when Ellen says, be true to yourself, one of the ways that this can be understood is to recognize who you are and don't pretend to be anyone else. That's what a lot of the time people mean, right? Be authentic, recognize who you are, don't pretend to be anyone else. But the problem with this is that these days, who you are has really become commensurate, which means the same, with what you want. Think about it. If being true to yourself means owning your desires and the things that you believe and the things that you want and not denying it's what you really want, then really being true to yourself kind of means just doing whatever you want, right? I mean, isn't a toddler who throws a tantrum when they ask for a cup of milk and you give them a cup of milk, but it's in a red cup and clearly, even though they didn't stipulate it at the time, they wanted a green cup and you should have known that. And then they refuse to drink the milk until, of course, you give it to their sister and then the tantrum escalates exponentially because it was their milk. I'm obviously speaking from a lot of experience here every morning. But isn't that tantrum a great example 
of someone being true to themselves. That's what that toddler's doing, right? They're being true to themselves. We, I just got really loud. There we go. (laughs) And isn't that exactly what we want the toddler not to do? Right? When we discipline the toddler, we're actually saying, please do not be true to yourself in this instance. Who you are is no good right now, and I don't want you to be true to yourself. Ellen doesn't have kids, but I wonder if she did, if she would be true to herself and allow her kids to be true to themselves, or if she would discipline them, and in so doing, punish them for being true to themselves, and thus not be true to herself, because she doesn't really believe that people should, in the end, be true to themselves. I'm sure you see my point. Strangely enough, it seems as though being true to yourself is something which comes with age. When a toddler is true to themselves, we tell them off. But when young adults are true to themselves, we celebrate. Why? Why do we do this? As is hopefully clear, the once easy and straightforward piece of advice to be true to yourself is actually a really confusing statement, which requires some clarification. Now, the truth is that actually most of the little platitudes that we throw around are, at their bottom cause, uh, confusing statements. Most of my students don't like the fact that I keep continually showing them how all the things that they think that they believe are actually just confusing statements that need clarification. But we should do it. And that's why we're asking these questions. Because this philosophy of being true to yourself has completely taken our culture by storm. And the implication of it is this. I am my desires. What we've come to in our society is that we are very much identified by what we want. Thus, the question, was I born this way, has in its subtext, I feel a certain way. There is something that I want, and it's therefore part of who I am. I didn't choose to want it, I just do. So I must have been born this way. Now unfortunately, and it's unfortunate because it's not really what I want to talk about, this little phrase, born this way, has recently really been associated with homosexuality. And I'm not really here today to discuss whether or not people who identify as gay are born that way, at least not directly. And I want to make that, that clear because it's really important that we do not categorise this question uh, in such a way as to make it about someone else, about someone else's issues, about someone with issues that we don't have. Uh, this is about us. It is about you. It's about me. It's about all of us because all of us every day face this struggle, the temptation to believe that our desires are good and justifiable simply because they are our desires. Therefore, they must be good. Now, before we go any further, it's important to point out that one obvious and vital thing should be clear. If indeed we are our desires, it's obvious that we are not all of them. We couldn't possibly be all of our desires because we often have competing and contradictory desires. What this means is that there are plenty of desires or yearnings that we experience that we suppress, desires to which we say no, just as there are plenty of desires to which we say yes and then accept. And this point makes one thing very clear. We are obviously not defined by our desires alone. It is not simply because we want something that we act on it and allow it to shape our identity. So we should ask the question, why do we suppress some desires and accept others? And who is it that decides which one should be suppressed or accepted? If this is confusing, I'll give you an example that I love and that I've used many times before. I said earlier that Ellen says, be kind to one another. 
And she also tells people to be true to themselves. Now this puts me in something of a conundrum. Because what if I don't want to be kind to people? What if me being true to myself is being mean to people? Which one should I do, Ellen? Which one would you prefer me to do? Which one of your pieces of advice should I follow? Imagine someone watching Ellen say those two things and they're a teenage bully. They really enjoy bullying people. Should they be kind or should they be true to themselves? Obviously, Ellen has decided that some desires should be suppressed, even though she herself has a mantra that suggests otherwise, that they shouldn't. You see, if I'm really going to be true to myself, I probably wouldn't end up being kind to everyone. Ellen wants to have it both ways, and she's a good example of this. She does believe that some desires should be suppressed. Ellen is gay, and she is being true to herself. And by that, I mean she's being true to her desires. She has some desires, she doesn't pretend that she doesn't have them, and then she acts on them. But 50 years ago, these very desires would have been the ones that society would have told her should be suppressed. My point is this. Who is Ellen to tell people what desires should and should not be suppressed? Which ones count as being true to yourself, and which ones, for some reason, fall outside of that category? It's clear that she, and indeed everyone, believes that some of our desires should be suppressed. So how can we work out which ones? I hope you can see the implications of this. Let's try to spell it out kind of logically. First, humans have desires. Second, we act on some. Third, we suppress some. And here's the important part. Those that we act upon, we call good. And those that we suppress, we call bad. It's as simple as that. And this, like being true to yourself, is actually another very old idea. Only a couple of decades younger than Shakespeare, actually. The English philosopher Thomas Hobbes wrote in a book called Leviathan in 1651, in which he imagined a world without God. And he tried to define goodness and evil according only to humanity. And here is what he wrote. For whatsoever is the object of any man's appetite or desire, that is it, for he for his part calleth good, and the object of his hate and aversion evil, and of his contempt vile and inconsiderable. For these words of good, evil, and contemptible are ever used with relation to the person that useth them, there being nothing simply and absolutely so. That's pretty much the same thing, right? That my, my dot points there, the five points, and then what it was that Thomas Hobbes said, Uh, close to 400 years ago. But what this example of Hobbes really nicely illustrates is that this is what happens when we take God out of the equation. In a world without God, we define ourselves. There is nothing else to define us, no great definer, no one who has given us purpose. And thus all of these responsibilities come to lie with us. They're on our shoulders. And therefore, we can see through some logical deduction what it is that we are actually saying when we decide that we are our desires or that our desires are good just because they're ours. This idea exists because we don't believe in God. Now, this might be a bit of a brutal point to make, but I'm sure even for all of us in here that do believe in God, you can probably recognize it as being a bit true in your own life. In those moments during which you allow yourself 
to believe the lie that your desires are good and that you should follow them and be true to yourself, what is actually happening in the background is a shift away from looking at God and a shift towards looking at yourself. We stop seeing God as God and we start to believe the old lie of the serpent, that we are God. Now this is just a really small and slight shift uh, that happens every day in tiny little ways. And in that sense, it's not really dealing with this particular question in all of its kind of largesse and, and full potential. But there are plenty of examples of the way that this mentality of being true to yourself has really big implications, and we can see it throughout society all the time. <clears throat> One of them is the ending of marriages. To put it quite simply, marriages end when desires become bigger than people. If you think about it, you'll realize that it's almost always, if not always true, that this is how marriages end in divorce. For at least one of the parties, the desires become bigger, more important, and more worth following than the other person. Marriages start with promises of fidelity and love till death, but they end when individual desires trump those promises. And what is it that we often hear people saying at these points? I have to be true to myself. I just don't love them anymore. I can't live a lie. Another example is the one that I raised earlier of homosexuality. And this is certainly the type of language that is used when people discuss their sexuality. The question of suppression is anathema. It's forbidden. You don't talk about suppressing these kind of deep personal things. I'm not at all wanting to make light of the situation, but I do want to point something out. That suppressing sexual desire is something that quite a lot of people do from time to time in their lives. And in one sense, it's actually something that almost everyone does a lot of their lives. And we're very grateful for that fact. Probably a lot of people would recognize that if they were really honest with themselves, if they allowed themselves to give in to their most base physical desires they would probably engage in far more sexual activity than they are presently. And here again we see that suppression of some desires is good and normal and expected. And even expected from those people who advocate that sexual desire should not be suppressed. They want to have it both ways. Another way that this is occurring at an alarmingly growing rate is the moment, at the moment is the transgender movement. Right, I'm sure you're all familiar with it. The idea has become rampant that if a person feels or thinks a certain thing, it therefore must be true. And here it seems, unlike most other areas, the world has lost its usual wisdom and temperance when it comes to dealing with children. Whereas most people would still correct a child for throwing a tantrum or smack a hand before it touches a hot plate, society at the moment is going out of its way to accept and encourage and even coax and coerce young people, really young children, who might have some normal questions about what it means to be a boy or a girl, to think that this speaks far deeper into their identity. The point is this. Just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean that it's who you are. I'm sure you all know that stupid dad joke that I used to hate, and immediately as soon as my kids could start talking, I started using as well. Your kid comes up and says, I'm hungry. And what do you say? Hello, hungry. I'm dad. 
My kids hate it. So I do it so much. (laughs) Now, I know that seems kind of trite, but that might possibly be the best way to describe just how ludicrous these ideas are at their heart. You don't become a hungry just because you are hungry. You remain a human being, you're just a hungry one. You just are a human being with a particular desire. You don't become something just because you want something. Your identity is not formed by your feelings or your desires. But, and this is a big but, and this is probably why we have made this leap in society... While your identity is not formed by your feelings or desires, it can be. You can allow it to be. And that's a really scary thing. That's what happens when a person makes the transition from being someone who simply enjoys good food to someone who thinks about it all the time and doesn't feel properly themselves unless they're eating or they've just eaten or they're getting ready to eat again. That's what happens when someone makes a transition from being someone who feels certain physical urges to someone who cannot imagine or comprehend not following those urges. And by the way, that is exactly the word that is used now, transition, to discuss the transgender process. It might be when someone attempts to transition from one gender to another, but it is also the transition of a person going from having some thoughts or feelings to allowing those thoughts and feelings to determine who they are, what their identity is, in its deepest sense. And the word that we often use here at the project and the word that the Bible often uses to talk about this is idolatry. It's when we allow ourselves to be defined by things other than Christ. So then one question might arise in all of this, and that is, well, what should we do with our desires? We have these desires... What's the point of them? What do we do with them? Well, perhaps the first thing to recognize is, like all of the other questions we've dealt with so far, this is a really old question. Aristotle, in fact, stated that it was the primary purpose of education to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. There are things that are good that should be liked. There are things that are bad that should be disliked. C.S. Lewis paraphrased Plato as saying this, The little human animal will not at first have the right responses. It must be trained to feel pleasure, liking, disgust and hatred at those things which really are pleasant, likeable, disgusting and hateful. In the same way that you know you can actually train people, children, to like things which they shouldn't like, we also train children to like things that they should And Lewis agrees with this. His book, The Abolition of Man, is all about the fact that people need to be trained to respond rightly to the world and thus to desire good things and to have good desires. Recognising and predicting this predicament that we find ourselves in today, Lewis explained this by dividing people into three parts. The head, for intellect and reason, the belly, for appetite and desires, and the chest, for properly trained sentiments. And using this terminology, Lewis said that the proper operation of a human is that the head rules the belly through the chest. Reason should rule over our base 
physical urges and desires through well-trained sentiments, through an alignment with what is truly good in the world. Does that make sense? And I don't think it would be unfair to suggest that the modern mantra would be something more like this. The belly rules the head and then justifies through the chest. What we see today is that a person has a desire, they want something, and then they use their reason to explain it and to think about it and to make sense of it. And then vitally, the most important part is that then they justify it by putting it in terms of love and justice and equality by appealing to sentiments. It doesn't just stay internal to them. You can see that arrow pointing outwards. So we want something, we we find a way to make that desire make sense and then we put it in terminology that people can't disagree with like love and equality right I should probably pause here and say that this is not like Christian non-Christian I mean ideally it would be but I don't think it's as simple as that I think really it's basically everyone very few people right And the weird thing is that when Christians get involved in that side of stuff, they add an extra element. They add the Bible. It's not an uncommon thing for someone to want something, have a desire, and then in the step of the head, they bring the Bible in and they find a way to read the Bible in such a way as to affirm the thing that they want. Right? We can, we can kind of all do that. The Bible's big enough and written over enough time that we can pick and choose bits to line up with what we want. This is what's going on, by the way, a lot when young Christian couples, unmarried, start sleeping together and the guilt that they feel leads them in one of two directions. Either they stop or they justify. They say things like, we're married in God's eyes, Right? God didn't set up the kind of the state sanction of marriage, and so even though we haven't signed on the piece of paper, we're committed to each other, blah, 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 right? That is what happens. And yes, that's a, that's a kind of a big example, but we do it all the time with little stuff every day. We justify. And the outcome of all of this, of Ellen's mantra to be true to ourselves, is the opposite of what it first seems. Because being true to yourself at first seems like it would set you free. It looks like freedom. But if what that means is saying yes to your desires, then it actually doesn't result in freedom. It results in being a slave to yourself, a slave to your desires. In fact, it results in a kind of dehumanizing process because it's actually a far more animalistic approach to say, I feel this, therefore I must do it. That's what animals do. Humans are more than that. And this is in many ways where we find ourselves today, in a world gone mad because everyone is a slave to themselves and to their own desires. We can't say no. But we can. Really important thing to remember, to recognize that we can. We can say no. As human beings made in the image of God, we have the ability to say no to our desires when those desires are twisted and warped and corrupt. We are not slaves to our programming, forced to accept every corrupt thing that we want and to follow our base desires to all of their ends. We can say no. This is what Eugene Peterson says about this capacity to say no to ourselves. Grammatically, the negative, our capacity to say no, 
is one of the most impressive features of our language. The negative is our access to freedom. Only humans can say no. Animals can't say no. Animals do what instinct dictates or what training embeds in them. No is a freedom word. I don't have to do what either my glands or my culture tells me to do. The judicious, well-placed no frees us from careening down many a blind alley, from bushwhacking through many a rough detour, frees us from debilitating distractions and seductive sacrilege. The art of saying no sets us free to follow Jesus. In this, this is what the world truly needs. Because we live in a world which agrees with Ellen. But being true to yourself in the sense of following your desires does not lead us to a happy place. We're actually really bad at knowing what will make us truly happy. Have you ever recognised that about yourself? You think, this thing, man, this thing is going to make me happy. You get that thing, you get a kind of happiness for a while, but it doesn't last. And sometimes you don't even get it. Sometimes you become obsessed with something that you think is going to make you happy and maybe you just get a fleeting moment of pleasure and then a whole bunch of unhappiness afterwards, immediately, as a result. We're not good at knowing what makes us truly happy. I did a quick search on the rates of suicide and depression and the results are heartbreaking. A series of reports had statements like this. Diagnoses of major depression have risen dramatically by 33% by 2000 and th- since 2013. The total estimated number of people living with depression worldwide increased by 18.4% between 2005 and 2015 to 322 million. An American study published in the medical journal Pediatrics late last year showed an increase in teens suffering depression from 8.7% to 11.5% in just 12 months. According to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, geez, that'd be a great weekly report, wouldn't it? You love every Saturday opening up that. Every week there's more information for you, great. According to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report of the Centers, of the Centers for Disease Control, the number of suicides in the United States has now surpassed the number of deaths from car accidents. In 2010, there were almost 34,000 deaths from collisions and 38,000 suicides. Even more alarmingly, the suicide rate for Americans in midlife, ages 35 to 64, increased between 99 and 2010 by nearly 30%. And the World Health Organization says that in the last 45 years, suicide rates have increased by 60% worldwide. My point is this. We're not great at knowing what's good for us. If you ask a lot of people, probably if you asked Ellen herself, she would probably suggest that the reason for these increases is that people are not being true to themselves, is that being true to yourself will free you from this kind of depression and anxiety. But I'm not convinced that that's the case at all, because this, be true to yourself, do what you feel like, this has been the mantra for a long time now. It's basically been the mantra from the point where everything started to increase and go bad. It's really the hallmark of modern capitalist West and it's doing nothing to slow our rates of depression and anxiety and suicide. In fact, they're growing faster than ever. So perhaps being true to yourself isn't the answer. Perhaps the answer is something older and much more radical. It's not about being true to ourselves. 
It's about being true to truth. It's about being defined by truth rather than attempting to define it for ourselves. We cannot live lies. It's a great old saying, I think that was first by uh, Cecil D. DeMille, who said, we cannot break God's law, we only break ourselves against it. Happiness is not something that we achieve when we pursue it. There is something in philosophy called the hedonist paradox. If you try to enjoy yourself, that's almost a surefire way to not enjoy yourself. Happiness is a byproduct. Happiness is what you get as a result of pursuing other things, more noble things. And those things are, quite simply, most easily put, not yourself. If you pursue yourself, you don't get happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of living according to reality. And to do that, humanity needs to realize that we are not our own gods. And we do not decide what is good and bad. But there is a way. There is the truth and the life which comes when we recognize that we are not our desires. That we might be born a certain way, but we don't have to say yes to that in the ways that it's dysfunctional.